We're in Luke 18 this morning, verses 31 to 34. In the early chapters of Luke, we saw many of the promises, or, or we might call them prophecies, from the Old Testament fulfilled in the coming and in the birth of Jesus. When the angel appeared to Zechariah and he told Zechariah that you will have a son, even though that would have been a miracle in and of itself, given Zechariah's old age and him and his wife's inability to have children to that, to that point. He said, not only are you going to have a son, which is a, a miracle, but this son, and he quotes Malachi 2, this son is going to be the Elijah-like prophet that comes before the Messiah that was mentioned in Malachi chapter 2, and it was fulfilled in John the Baptist. When Mary was visited by Gabriel, and told that even though she'd never known a man, that she would conceive and bear a son, and his name would be called Jesus. This was the obvious fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. In Luke, you have a name, Jesus. In Isaiah, you have a title, Emmanuel, God with us. The Son of God, Isaiah 7, 14, fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. When Gabriel was speaking with, with Mary, he said, this son that you're going to bear miraculously, he's going to be the promised ruler, the one, the one that will rule on the throne of David forever. That was summarized, a promise given back in 1 Chronicles chapter 7, that God will raise up a descendant of David who will rule on his throne forever. And when the time for Jesus' birth drew near, God providentially moved Joseph and Mary to a little town called Bethlehem, the city of David, where Jesus would be born, fulfilling Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel." What will this ruler be like, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days? All of these fulfillments, and it wasn't just centered around the birth of Christ. If you remember early on in Luke 4, he walks into the synagogue, he takes the scroll that happens to be in Isaiah, and he reads this text from Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He reads that, hands the scroll back, and says, Today that's fulfilled in your presence. I'm the one. I'm the one who has come. I'm the one who was talked about in Isaiah. So we've seen that Jesus is the one who was promised, the Son of God, the one who is from old, the Ancient of Days, the Spirit-anointed bringer of good news and freedom and healing, the one who will rule forever on the throne of David. And the disciples knew, knew something of this. They didn't, they didn't fully understand who Jesus was. They knew something of who he was. That's why they were willing to forsake everything and to follow him. But it's also what made it really hard for them to understand, indeed impossible for them to understand Jesus' words until their eyes were opened by God 
after the resurrection. The words are these in Luke chapter 18, verse 31. It says, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Now think about everything we just said about Christ and who He is. And this is what Jesus says will happen to Him in Jerusalem. For He will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging Him, they will kill Him. And on the third day, He will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. So we've got three points this morning as we walk through this text. The first point is that the the Scriptures, the Old Testament, foretold the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's in verse 31. Then Jesus goes on to describe what's going to happen to him when they get to Jerusalem here in, in a chapter or so. So the second point is Jesus foretold the death and resurrection of himself. And then last, the disciples, and if you have notes, I put it in parentheses, eventually understood the death and resurrection of Jesus. They don't get it in our text. And we'll see what it is that they didn't understand and why. So let's look at verse 31 there. The Scriptures foretold the death and resurrection of Jesus. Remember back in Luke chapter 9, Jesus set His face towards Jerusalem. And that, that, that sort of the shadow of the cross has been casting its shadow over these few verse or these chapters that we've been in. So throughout all the healings and instruction and circumstances from chapter 9, verse 51, up until now, this reality of him heading towards Jerusalem has been in the background of every text. And Jesus pulls his disciples aside and it says, he says, it's time for us to go up to Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem, you, you may know, is sort of set on a hill. So no matter where you were coming from, you had to go up. J.O., our former preaching elder, for those of you who are really new around here, he used to joke that Custer was like Jerusalem. you got to come up from Rapid City to get to the glorious city of Custer. Sorry, for the, I didn't have that part in my notes. Um, but he, he pulls his disciples away, telling them it's time to go to Jerusalem. And we know what awaits Jesus there. If you remember earlier in Luke, one of the religious leaders comes up to Jesus and said, you better get out of here. Herod wants to kill you. And ironically, Jesus says, uh, essentially, Herod can't kill me because prophets are killed in Jerusalem. And what's he saying? I'm on my way to Jerusalem. That's where I'm going to die. Herod can't touch me right, right now. So he wants his disciples, as they prepare to head to Jerusalem, to understand that his death will be the fulfillment of the will of the Lord from before the foundation of the world. And one of the ways that, one of the ways that we can know that, that this is God's plan, is, is that it was clearly stated in the prophets, in the writings of the Old Testament. So before we dive into the details there, I want us to, to maybe call time out to pause for just a minute and see Notice Jesus' affirmation of the Old Testament. Before we get into the promises of the prophets, just notice notice His affirmation of these writings of the Scriptures. Jesus, throughout His ministry, has appealed to the authority of the Old Testament. 
He lived consistently with the commands of the Old Testament. He consistently affirmed the reliability of the Old Testament. So, so we don't have the right to sort of say, well, I don't believe in the God of the Old Testament. I believe in there, there's only one God who's clearly presented in, to us in the Scriptures. In fact, when Jesus spoke of Adam and Eve, or Cain and Abel, or Solomon, or David, or Noah, or, or anybody that he mentioned, he always only ever talked about them as historical people and historical events. And he treats these passages about the Messiah's suffering with equal weight and authority. He appeals to them. How can you know this was God's good plan? Well, the Old Testament talked about what he's going to say here in a moment. That everything, he says, everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. And in that, we can trust that this is God's good plan that he brought about from the beginning, revealed through the Old Testament, revealed through his prophets. In other words, the death of Christ is the furthest thing from an accident. You know, some who have studied the life of Jesus assume that it's a, his life was a failed revolution. He was a, some sort of religious zealot who underestimated how the Jews would receive him and underestimated the fact that Rome might use their uh, threat of death against him. But the death of Jesus is no unfortunate accident. The entire Bible from cover to cover demonstrates this truth. The prophets foretold what's going to happen here in Jerusalem. His death is the fulfillment of all that was written in the Old Testament. And so let's, let's take a look at what the prophets wrote. You know, for, for ease, maybe we'll just stick in, in uh, Isaiah, in these, what, what's called the servant song. So we don't, we don't flip often, but if you have a Bible, you might want to flip and follow along here. Isaiah 42. Again, there's four sections towards the end of Isaiah that are called the servant songs, and they describe this servant of the Lord. The coming Messiah, who we've seen in Luke, is Jesus Christ. What do, we, what do we find out about this servant, this coming one, the Messiah, Jesus Christ? Well, in Isaiah 42, and I, you know, we could spend weeks, right, walking through this. So we're just gonna, we're gonna skim the surface to see what are some passages like that Jesus is referencing here. Well, look, look in verse one. Behold my servant, whom I uphold. My chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So the, the, this servant, in Isaiah 42, he's, he's chosen, he's delighted in by the Father, and he's filled with the Spirit. And what happened at, at, at Jesus' baptism? The Spirit of God descends on him like, like a dove from heaven. And the Father speaks from heaven and says, Behold, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. You are my beloved Son. Jesus is the servant who has the good pleasure of the Father, who has the Spirit of God. He's a servant described in Isaiah. And we see that this, this servant is a royal figure. He's a kingly figure who, 
who will exercise judgment over all the nations. King David, one of the greatest kings in Israel, on his best day, tried to bring about justice in Israel. This servant in Isaiah 42 will exercise justice among the nations. Well, that's the first servant song. In Isaiah 49, there's another. Again, we can't look at every verse. In Isaiah 49, look, this is the second servant song. Look there in verse 3. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But then drop down to verse 5. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. It's interesting, in, in Isaiah 49.3, the servant is called Israel. Yet in verse 5 and 6, his task is to bring back Israel and to restore Israel. If you remember, way back in Genesis, God changed Jacob's name to Israel and said that, that, that through Jacob, through Israel, would come this offspring who would be the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, who would bring blessings to all the nations. And so this, this, this offspring, this seed was supposed to come through Israel. Well, it doesn't take long as you, as you read your Old Testament. If you were to start in Genesis, you know, I had uh, one young lady come to me. And she said, I'm, I'm working on reading my Bible. I've, I'm through chapter 9. I said, all right, keep, keep going. Well, if you start in chapter 9, you keep reading through Genesis you realize that, that Israel as a nation is unfit for this responsibility. They, they, have, they have failed in their call here, we saw at the end of verse 6, to be a, a light to the nations. They're no light to the nations. So what's going on? The servant of the Lord will fulfill what Israel was meant to be. He is Israel in that sense. He will be worthy of the title. In Him will all the nations of the earth be blessed. Let's look over in chapter 50. The third servant song. And this is where we begin to see the indignity that the servant will suffer. In fact, it looks a lot like what Jesus is about to describe in, in the coming verses. Look there at verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. The servant, though he alone is worthy to take up the task that's given to Israel, he will suffer this pain and indignity. And that brings us to the text Dave read this morning, Isaiah 53, the fourth servant song. We notice what we get in Isaiah 53 is the purpose for which the suffering or the servant would suffer. Look at verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
though he was perfect in righteousness. Right? Look at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord. Though he was perfect, there was no violence found in him, nothing in his, sinful in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. The servant will suffer on behalf of those who have wandered away like sheep. And again, we see those, those two ideas that in our human thinking might be competing ideas that the royal figure of Isaiah 42, the one that's chosen, the bringer of the Spirit, the Israel of God in Isaiah 49, will be crushed in verse 11 to make many to be, to be accounted righteous. To bear the iniquity of many. And so Jesus says all that was written in the prophets will be accomplished in Jerusalem. And Jesus says this is is the mission for which I've been sent to be led like like a lamb to the slaughter. I will go fulfill the mission. I'm heading to Jerusalem to fulfill the mission for which I was sent. And of course, Praise the Lord that the death of Jesus is not all that will be accomplished. Right? Even, even Isaiah 53 alludes to this hope of the resurrection. I think I heard some of you flipping back to Luke, but if you're still there, in Isaiah 53, um, look at the end of verse 10 there. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. After being crushed, after being put to death, after making atonement for, the, for son, Isaiah 53.10 says, the days of the suffering servant will be prolonged. He will live to see his offspring, so to speak. And so the death and the resurrection, testified by the prophets, that's what's going to happen when Jesus enters Jerusalem, and it's talked about, it's spoken about, it's alluded to, it's specifically stated throughout the Old Testament. And that's what Jesus says will happen in, explicitly in verses 32 and 33. For he, the Son of Man, will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Not only did the scriptures speak of the death and resurrection of Christ, the death and resurrection of Messiah, but Jesus explicitly foretold this to his disciples. You know, as we've walked through Luke, the the predictions that Jesus gives of of his death are increasing in clarity. You know, he's, he's talked about his death before, two times pretty explicitly, and a, several other times, like six or seven other times, kind of alluded to it, right? The, the bridegroom's going to go away. Okay, well, what's he talking about? He's talking about his death. Explicitly, he's told them that he will die. And so what happens in Luke's gospel, the closer and closer you get to the cross, the more clarity he's giving about what will happen to him in Jerusalem. And so between verse 31 and 32, we can, we can imagine the disciples' reaction. They've just been told that, hey, everything that's been written about the Son of Man is going to be accomplished when, when we go up to Jerusalem. 
Well, we'll see in a minute, they had no idea what that truly meant. For them, the notion of a fulfilled prophecy about the Messiah would have been so exciting for them. Right? Oh, he's going to go overthrow Rome finally. And we can rule with him politically on this earth. And then they get smacked in the face with Jesus' words that I'll be handed over to the Gentiles, shamefully treated, spit upon, killed. First he says he will be handed over to the Gentiles. Again, the, one, the, the only one worthy of the title Israel and Isaiah is now treated with the curse that would fall on the nation of Israel when they failed to obey the Lord, right? What would happen when they failed to obey? Another nation would come in, a Gentile nation would come in and, and conquer them and take them away out of their own land. They were given over to another country. They were given over to Gentiles in judgment. And so Jesus, the one who was, actually could fulfill what Israel was supposed to be, now is suffering the curse that Israel had deservedly brought upon themselves. Remember that even, even as Luke was writing that Rome uh, had occupied Israel. And if Jesus is going to be crucified, he's going to have to be handed over to the Gentiles because only Rome had the authority to execute people. We see Israel and Rome sort of conspiring at the end of our gospel. He has a trial before the Jewish leaders, and he has a trial before the Roman leaders. But ultimately, if he's going to be put to death, he has to be turned over to the Gentiles. And during these mock trials and Pilate's weak attempts to sort of wiggle out of putting Jesus to death, what do we see? We see in these trials Jesus shamefully treated. He's mocked, he's slapped, he's spit on. You know, there are few things as indignifying as being spit on. You know, the Greek word is actually an example of onomatopoeia that you learned about in school where the word sounds like the thing, it's emtuo. It sounds like you're spitting out on something, someone. Treated shamefully, slapped. And this leads into Jesus' beating and execution by way of the cross in verse 33. You know, this, this ESV says flogging, this, this beating was sometimes even enough in itself to kill a man. A person condemned to crucifixion would often be beaten with a whip prior to going to the cross. And in that, at the end of that whip would be pieces of glass and bone tied in, designed to inflict maximum pain. And then he would die, he says. Jesus predicts his death. They will kill the Son of Man. We know that this happens through crucifixion. You know, we need to... We need to sort of find the right line here. We need to walk a thin line, so to speak, because the authors of Scripture don't spend a ton of time describing the horrors of crucifixion. They don't spend a ton of time on the excruciating details of the pain and the torture endured by Jesus. But at the same time, if you mentioned to somebody in this context that he was crucified, all these horrific details would come to mind. So we want to find that line. In fact, one pastor helps us, I think he says this, to be sure, 
Christian history contains examples of those who overindulged in morbid fixation on Jesus' sufferings. So some people have sort of fallen off this side of the horse where they get so involved in like, what happened? What, how, why would it have hurt so bad? But he warns us, but can't some of us run into another danger? Can we almost de-crucify Jesus? Thinking of his suffering as merely, now hear that, that word's important, merely a doctrinal concept and not the inhuman blow upon blow he endured for us. And I think that's good counsel for us this morning. That as you consider Jesus, don't become so familiarized with, with certain words that we use that you lose sight of what he endured on our behalf to accomplish the sort of things that we rejoice in, our justification, propitiation, wrath-bearing sacrifice, atonement for sin, justification. Those came through the suffering of Christ. And thankfully, Lastly, Jesus predicts his resurrection. He says on the third day, he will rise. And we saw this too was foretold by the prophets in Isaiah 53. Or consider Psalm 16.10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You will not abandon my soul to, she, that's, that's the grave. You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. David, the one who penned those words, knew something of the fact that he was, he was picturing a greater reality, that he was writing about someone greater than himself. Even the book of Acts says that, that you know, David saw corruption in some sense. David was put in the grave, and he stayed in the grave, and his body wasted away. However, Jesus Christ, the one about which these words were truly written, were pointing forward to, he did not stay in the grave. He did not receive corruption in his body. He, did not, he was not left there to decay in the tomb. Instead, he was resurrected. And again in Acts, and now in Him the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to all the nations. He has defeated sin's penalty by taking it on Himself and conquering the penalty of sin. For the wages of sin is death. Christ defeated death in His resurrection. Taking on the penalty of Himself, conquering it through His resurrection. Never to see death. Again, never to see decay the once-for-all resurrection of Christ. As we think about what Jesus says, says He's going to do, and we sort of put this in the context of Luke chapter 18, remember that we are on the heels of the rich young ruler saying, now what must I do to inherit eternal life? As if there is one thing that this, one, this rich young ruler could pull off. One deed that he could do. Again, remember what Matthew said. What good deed must I do? Well, I think it's here in verses 31 and 34. We see what it takes for eternal life to be granted. This is the way in which eternal life is earned. It's through the work of Christ. Not through a good deed. This is what it took as we think about the, 
the, the giving over to the Gentiles, the shameful treatment, the beating, the crucifixion. This is what it took. And after hearing Jesus' words in, in Luke chapter 18, you can begin to, to realize how ridiculous it is to assume that the goodness of the rich young ruler or the goodness of the Pharisee earlier in Luke chapter 18 could earn eternal life. We see that it took the willing laying down of the life of Christ as a substitute to accomplish what they assumed could be earned by their good works, by their keeping of the law. So it's instructive for us this morning that it isn't some kind of penance that can take away our sins. It isn't doing a good deed that's equal with the bad deed that you're feeling guilty over that can take away your sins. The problem with that way of thinking is it so underestimates the holiness of God. And if we underestimate the holiness of God, then we underestimate how, how terrible the reality of sin is. If God is no big deal, then sin is no big deal. But if God is holy and righteous and good, then my offense against Him is an infinite offense. We sing that song, stricken, smitten, and afflicted from time to time. And I love those lines, Ye who think of sin but lightly, if you think of sin lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may see its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Tis the Word, the Lord's anointed, Son of Man and Son of God. What are we singing about when we sing that song? If you think of sin lightly, if you don't suppose that the evilness of sin is, is truly wicked, just look at the cross and see what it costs Jesus. Just look what, what the plan had to be to accomplish redemption and justification and salvation and the forgiveness of sins. And so as we come to this text and we consider the indignity of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the Son of God, the Royal One, the Davidic King, the One in whom all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. When I see what he says he will go through in Jerusalem. It reminds me of the wickedness of sin, the depths of my own sin, and what it required for me to be forgiven of my sins and to be counted righteous in Christ. It's only in him. It's only in him. Because he was delivered over. He was mocked, shamefully treated, spit upon, beaten, and crucified. And Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that's how we can know the love of God. That God has demonstrated His love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Scriptures predicted this. Jesus predicted this. And the disciples, princes, eventually understood this. But not in our passage. They didn't understand it in ours. Look there in verse 34. Notice, notice the repetition. Three times, in three short phrases, it mentions the disciples' inability to understand. The repetition is important. It's making a point here that we cannot miss. But they understood none of these things. There's one. This saying was hidden from them, too, and they did not grasp what was said. They heard His words, but they failed to understand. 
You know, sometimes in a, in a novel, if you're reading, or, or in a movie, you as, as the reader or the viewer, you have privileged information that the characters, let, let's just stick with movie, the characters in the movie don't have, right? You get a perspective that the characters don't have. You know, you think about the cliche, scary movie moment. Hey, let's split up and go inside the really creepy house. And, and, and as a viewer, you know there's what's in the house. And you're like, don't go in the house. Don't ever split up and go inside a creepy house because the bad guy's in the house. And as you watch the movie, you think, man, if they had the information that I have, they wouldn't go to their sure death. But what's, what's interesting about our passage is that Jesus is the, the only one. He's the only one in our story that has all the information. He's the only one that knows the danger that lies ahead in Jerusalem. Yet he presses on. Yet he presses on. He willingly chooses to go to that cross. But the disciples in our text, they don't, they don't get it. What's funny, it's ironic maybe, funny, maybe not the right word, but in Mark's account, Mark doesn't, just, Mark doesn't tell us that they failed to understand. He just shows us that they failed to understand by, by slipping in the story of the disciples fighting about who's going to be the greatest. They so misunderstood what Jesus is saying that they start quibbling about who's going to be the greatest once they get there. Well, Luke doesn't illustrate it. He just plainly tells us they did not understand. They did not grasp the significance of what Jesus was saying. And the reality is they could not grasp it. They could not. It was hidden from them. That's what sometimes what we call a divine passive. God was, was causing this to happen. They could not see. They could not understand. God had not revealed it to them yet. They heard the words. I'm convinced that if you asked them right afterwards, hey, what did Jesus just say? They could have probably repeated the words, but they did not hear with understanding. Remember that the emphasis in our text is that the things written about the Son of Man through the prophets will be accomplished. I think that's what's, what's hidden from them. What's hidden from them is they cannot see how this is the will of God that's been revealed through the Scriptures. They cannot see that Jesus' death and resurrection is actually the fulfillment of what was written by the prophets. And the reason I say that is this, isn't that exactly what Jesus reveals to them following his resur- resurrection? Right? He's on the road to Emmaus in, in Luke chapter 24. And it says, in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And what did they say? Well, they, they were given eyes to see Jesus. And they said, did our hearts not burn within us when he opened to us the scriptures? What they could not understand in Luke 18, Jesus opens their eyes to understand in Luke 24. The next paragraph, he shows up to all the disciples and he says, remember, I told you this. I told you that all these things would be accomplished. And in verse 45 of chapter 24, then he opened their minds 
to understand the Scriptures. They could not understand Jesus' words until He showed up following the resurrection and opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. He showed them from showed them from the Old Testament all the things concerning himself. This is how this pointed to me, and this is how this pointed to me. Remember that you too were once blind to the glory of the gospel. And it was God who said, let, uh, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts, Paul says, in giving us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What is impossible with man, Luke 18, is possible with God, Luke 24. And we see in this, as we wrap up this morning, that the Bible is not primarily just a manual on how to live. It is the progressive unfolding of the plan of God to demonstrate His glory through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we see that clearly in our text, that we can glorify God in light of His good plan that He unfolded for us in Scripture. You know, sometimes the burden of a text, sometimes the burden of a passage is not go and do. Right? Sometimes when we think about sermon application, we think we have to, we have, to have something to do. We have to have something to... Well, sometimes the burden of a passage is sit and savor the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. All we can really do with a text like this is pray that the Spirit would would push our minds to Jesus, that we'd rejoice in the glory of the Gospel, and that we'd thank God for His plan of redemption. You know, in a moment, we're going to sing Hallelujah for what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Many of you know this, but that if, if you don't, that word hallelujah, it's kind of two Hebrew words pressed together. Hallel, Yah. It's praise Yahweh. It's praise God. So as we sing in just a, mem- a, a moment, remember that we are responding with praise to the glory of God. who determined before the foundation of the world to accomplish salvation, revealed it through the prophets, predicted it in Jesus, fulfilled it in the cross and resurrection, and now that hope is proclaimed to the world. So we sing, hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah indeed. Let's pray. Lord, may our hearts burn within us as we consider your word and your glory as you plan salvation in a way that is so far beyond what we could have thought about, imagined, planned ourselves. We thank you for the glory of the gospel. May you be pleased with the way that we respond. In Jesus' name, amen.